1906, violinist Freda Marsden auditioned for the orchestra of the New Zealand International Exhibition to be held in Christchurch later that year. The orchestra for this major event was intended to represent a leap forward in orchestral standards in this country. It would perform at key events such as the opening ceremony in front of eminent leaders and international representatives as well as in a series of concerts throughout the exhibition. Freda Marsden was well qualified for the orchestra, having performed extensively as a soloist in charity events as well as participating in local orchestras for at least a decade. However, at her audition, she was informed by an exhibition official that she could not join the exhibition orchestra because she was a woman. The general manager of the exhibition, George Munro, wrote, Personally, I do not know very much about the constitution of an orchestra, but I'm advised by the ceremonial and entertainment committee that the services of ladies are not as satisfactory in this capacity as those of men. The committee state that they are less amenable to discipline <laughs> and less reliable in their attention to work. After the editor of the Littleton Times became involved, Freda Marsden and five other women were admitted to the orchestra and no further reference was made to her supposed unsuitability. However, Freda Marsden's case reflects New Zealand's interaction with international rhetoric around concert orchestras more broadly. My research explores this ideology of the orchestra and how orchestras, women and cultural identity challenged and informed each other in the long 19th century. My wider project is going to examine the role of women in orchestras in various centres in Europe, the United States, the UK and Australia, but today I'm going to focus on two specific examples of New Zealand orchestras at the turn of the 20th century. First, some context. Gendered rhetoric had shaped orchestras for more than two centuries before Freda Marsden encountered this prejudice. From their origins in court ensembles in the 17th century and through the increasing institutionalisation of orchestras as public performing bodies in the 19th century, orchestras had always been overwhelmingly masculine in their constitution. There were several reasons for this. First, most orchestral instruments were considered unsuitable for women as they required facial distortions in the case of wind instruments, or supposedly inelegant or even militaristic gestures in the case of the thrusting bows of the string instruments. And these were, of course, thought unsuitable um, because they would compromise a woman's physical attractiveness, and we won't even go into the reasons why they weren't supposed to play cellos. Although the resistance to female violinists broke down in the second half of the 19th century and violin playing was increasingly envisaged as suitable for women, orchestral violin playing by women was still actively resisted in many spheres. This resistance was due to a second factor in the orchestra's relationship to gender. As a collective entity featuring individuals working together under leadership to achieve a common goal, the orchestra was effectively a workplace and a specifically masculine one at that. Metaphorical language used in association with orchestras in the 18th and 19th centuries compared the ensemble variously to an army or a factory. Both environments deemed unsuitable for respectable women during a period that idealised the middle class white woman as an angel in the house. Indeed, women were often thought incapable of enduring the physical labour of orchestra rehearsals or unable to temper their emotional natures in order to focus on working collectively. 
Third, the concert orchestra was envisaged as a public performing body. Its visibility on the concert stage would potentially further compromise the idealised domestic status of those angels in the house. But fourth, and paradoxically, the orchestra was also conceived as an invisible entity, which erased individual identities in the black uniforms of a servant class. Sometimes the orchestra was even buried out of sight in the pit of the opera house so that the focus might be on the sonic product and not the process of realising that product. In other words, the labour of the musicians was to be overlooked in favour of the musical work of the composer, which was conceived as the rational, complex, abstract thought of usually the male creative intellect. The sight of women on the stage was often perceived as a distraction from this composer's work. We can see several of these factors at play in comments made about women's participation in orchestras in the early 20th century. <clears throat> For example, in 1903, the director of a New York theatre orchestra stated that few musical directors would want women because women cannot be depended upon for rehearsing and the hard work demanded of musicians. Woman, lovely woman, is always to be admired, except when she's playing in an orchestra. She's certainly not in her own sphere, and any leader will find this out after he has had a few quarrels and instances of feminine disagreements. And in 1910, a member of the newly formed Musicians' Union in Melbourne similarly protested at the inclusion of women in orchestras in that city. There is a tendency to make the orchestra a social affair. No doubt it looks better to have a lot of pretty young ladies playing instead of grizzled old fiddlers. Women, the musician, seems to imply compromise the orchestra's ability to function as an idealised abstraction which should be heard and not seen. Certain European orchestras continued to draw on these various factors to actively exclude women as recently as the 1990s. As the men of the Vienna Philharmonic debated whether to allow women into that orchestra's ranks, one member complained, we would be gambling with the emotional unity that this organism currently has. <clears throat> And another stated, if one establishes superficial egalitarianism, one will lose something very significant. However, the reason given for the willingness to accept what the player described as a sexist irritation was in this case specifically connected to the cultural context of Vienna itself. The special Viennese qualities of the way music is made here, the way we make music here is based not only on a technical ability, but also on something that has a lot to do with the soul. The soul cannot be separated from the cultural roots that we have here in Central Europe, and it also cannot be separated from gender. As I turn now to my two case studies from New Zealand a century earlier, we will see how these notions of the interconnections between culture, gender and the orchestra were enacted in a quite different context, as the soul was laying down new roots. The two orchestras I'm focusing on today are both associated with international or intercolonial exhibitions. Before examining the 1906 Christchurch Exhibition Orchestra, in which Freda Marsden eventually participated, I'll consider the earlier New Zealand and South Seas Exhibition Orchestra, which played in Dunedin in 1889 to 90. International exhibitions form a particularly rich site for studies of orchestra's cultural identity. Following the model um, established by London's Great Exhibition of 1851 and staged in massive show buildings and surrounding grounds, international exhibitions were months-long extravaganzas. 
The host nation staged exhibits of its own products and history, as well as items from other countries, and events that were part amusement park, part trade fair, part museum. The exhibitions were typically designed as bold displays of national identity and strength, and often coincided with important milestones in a nation's history. Thus, New Zealand's exhibition of 1889-90 was conceived as a jubilee event marking the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi, while the 1906 event marked New Zealand's status as a dominion. Music played a significant role in the cultural narratives enacted by international exhibitions. In his closing remarks for the 1889 exhibition, John Roberts, who was the president of this event, listed music as the first of the great benefits to be had from <coughs> exhibitions generally. And key to the musical events of an exhibition was its orchestra. Orchestras were particularly skilled at straddling the entertainment and educational functions of the exhibition, performing classical works seen as the equivalent of the fine art displayed in the exhibition's galleries, while also entertaining visitors with more popular concerts. In the case of the two exhibition orchestras I'm looking at today, the very existence of the orchestra had itself been viewed as an important step in New Zealand's orchestral history, for each has been described as by music historians independently as New Zealand's first professional concert orchestra. Because of their close association with iconic events and nation building, exhibition orchestras are also particularly well documented. In the case of the 1889-90 orchestra, there's a significant photograph of the ensemble by the exhibition's official photographer, David de Moss. And, um, and this photograph actually formed the starting point for my project. I came across it at Toitu Otago Settlers Museum when I was researching a quite different topic um, and was just immediately struck by the presence of the three white-clad women um, among the traditional black attire of the men. I'll just see if I can get this pointer working here. They're um, prominently positioned near the centre of the orchestra in the first three desks, so the first three um, sort of pairs of music stands um, in the front of the vi first violin section, which is a position um, that you would have if you are a, a very good violinist. I was able to identify the three women thanks to another valuable source of information about the exhibition orchestra, the published official record of the exhibition. While programs of the time often did not list members of orchestras by name, the official record supplies the names of all of the players of the exhibition orchestra, and here we see Mrs. Joel Packer and Nina Schlott, which should actually be Schlottel. Who were these women, and how did they get to occupy centre stage in such a significant event in New Zealand's orchestral history? This was my sort of response to it, and it sort of took me on a big detour away from the project I was supposed to be working on, but it's turned out to be um, much more fruitful. Um, so drawing on information in the exhibition's official documentation, genealogical records, as well as the extensive journalistic accounts of the exhibition and its orchestra, it's been possible to contextualise the experiences of these th three women, and I'll just um, give a sort of a brief summary of that today. So in the front desk is 22-year-old Hannah Packer, who grew up in Christchurch and trained in violin and piano in London before returning to Christchurch two years before the exhibition and performing as a violinist, primarily in concerts associated with her local Anglican church. Behind her, 20-year-old Blanche Joel was the daughter of a local brewer and exhibition official, Morris Joel. She would later move to London to study as a pianist, but was sufficiently proficient on the violin that she performed publicly on that instrument in chamber ensembles with other members of the exhibition orchestra, as we can see in the second photograph there. 
Finally, Nina Schlottel was something of a local child prodigy on the violin. While newspaper references to her vary as to the date of her birth, as is often the case with child prodigies, you want to make them seem younger than they actually are, she appears to have still been a teenager during the exhibition, possibly she was as young as 13. She would subsequently move to Melbourne and perform as a violinist in that city before quitting the stage to marry. All three violinists were, at the time of the exhibition, unmarried local young women of good standing and proven musical ability. However, this status is not immediately reconcilable with their position in the exhibition orchestra. For this significant event in the nation's history, exhibition officials were willing to spend some money, bringing in male players from Australia and elsewhere in New Zealand and paying them quite well at five pounds a week for the five months of the event. In these circumstances, it might appear odd that the potential masculine integrity of the orchestra was compromised by the inclusion of three local women. In fact, it was in part a direct consequence of the overall expense of the orchestra that the three women were employed. As the Evening Star reported, had it not been for the assistance of these young ladies, the music committee would have been obliged to approach the commissioners with a request to be allowed to employ an additional professional violinist, i.e. man, at a cost of about five pounds a week. The women gave their services for free. <laughs> The only reward the women received for the hours of rehearsals and concerts across the five months of the exhibition was a gold watch each, valued at approximately five pounds, i.e. just one week's salary for each of the men. While we might now resent the injustice of this blatantly unequal pay, for the three women, the gift in lieu of salary had the potential advantage that it preserved their status as respectable amateurs, making it clear that they were not working women who laboured for money on the public stage. Indeed, a speech made at the opening ceremony emphasised the virtuous nature of the women's contribution, lauding the services they were supplying, quote, generously and with a considerable self-denial. This idea of women's charitable contributions to orchestral playing was familiar internationally. For example, while it was still commonly considered inappropriate for women to participate in professional concert orchestras alongside men, from the 1870s, whole orchestras of women were formed to cater for the increasing numbers of female string players in particular. These women's orchestras typically followed one of two models. Women's orchestras who were paid comprised women of predominantly working class backgrounds who performed more popular repertoire in beer halls and so forth, and who sometimes capitalised on the novelty factor with special costumes such as the hunting costumes worn by Les Merveilleuses here. Women of middle classes and above, by contrast, would play in amateur women's orchestras, which focused on more elite repertoire. These orchestras conceived their role as more of an educational one. Such orchestras typically performed less frequently and then only for charity events. It was this honourable amateur model of feminine orchestral performance that the three women of the 1889 exhibition orchestra were drawing on. Only one of the numerous descriptions of the exhibition orchestra and its performances frames the women in terms that are literally less savoury, emphasising their novelty value in somewhat sensual terms. After discussing the various male members of the orchestra, the journalist concludes, there are ladies too, three of them whom we have reserved as we do the confectionery and sweets at a dinner to the last. New Zealand had at least two all-women orchestras in the late 19th century, including one founded in Christchurch by Freda Marsden, the violinist with whom I opened, in 1898. 
However, in New Zealand, idealism also rubbed shoulders with pragmatism. In the effort to establish orchestral practices in a country of such relatively limited population, women's presence in mixed orchestras was tolerated far more readily than in cosmopolitan centres in Europe. Indeed, music was increasingly seen as a somewhat effeminate pursuit in New Zealand. A shortage of male string players was exacerbated by the perception, common by the end of the century, that non-brass instruments, so including string instruments, were effeminate, and the sense that in New Zealand, sport took precedence over the arts. Not much has changed. Moreover, in terms of women in the workplace, change was in the air. In a radical generational shift, by the time of the Dunedin exhibition, or very shortly thereafter, almost 40% of young New Zealand women between 15 and 24 were in paid employment. Like the three women of the exhibition orchestra, the vast majority of these working women were unmarried, and their employment was thus impacted by two rules. First, the breadwinner wage, which dictated that a man would be paid an income to support his whole family while his wife maintained the household. And second, the so-called marriage bar, the related rule that a woman should therefore cease paid work upon marriage when she could be supported by her husband's salary. However, if women were increasingly entering the workplace, their roles were usually kept quite separate to those of the men. As Eric Olson has demonstrated in his social history of work in South Dunedin during this period, Men and women often entered the workplace through separate doors, worked in separate spaces, and took their lunch breaks in separate rooms. In this respect, uh, the exhibition orchestra was partially a typical workplace for 1889, because the male and female performers each did enter the stage from different sides and congregated in separate tea rooms. But within the orchestra, it was impossible for the women to be physically separated from the men. As violinists, they had to be seated within, amid the violin section to blend their sound and coordinate their gestures with the rest of the players of the same part. Incidentally, the fact that the harpist of an orchestra can be seated at some distance from the rest of the players is one reason given by the male members of the Vienna Philharmonic that they were willing to tolerate female harpists um, but not female member, uh, players of any other instruments as late as the 1990s. Despite the initial care taken to preserve distinct gender roles, the fact that women were participating in the paid workforce in increasing numbers in the 1880s and 90s led to a rethinking of gender expectations. The significant rise of working women in New Zealand in this period was a key factor in generating the momentum necessary to gain women the vote. Kate Shepard wrote in a widely distributed pamphlet, is it right that the dude, the masher, whose chief occupation in life seems to be to act as a tailor's block, smoke cigarettes and suck the end of a cane, should have a vote, while a woman who earns her own living, and it may be, toils hard to maintain her family, is denied it? Indeed, as Scott Crawford suggests, New Zealand female social reformers could not change the world but had the spiritual and physical resources to achieve voting parity. These women knew themselves to be useful. They had nourished a pioneering settlement, not by passivity, expressiveness and dependence, but with a generous sprinkling of instrumental qualities. The participation of the three women in the 1889 orchestra might be seen to be informed by the burgeoning awareness of women's rights during the period. Blanche Joel was a cousin, once removed, of Julius Vogel, the former Premier of New Zealand, who had earlier presented a bill to Parliament calling for women to be given the right to vote, and whose futuristic novel, Anno Domini, published the same year as the exhibition, predicted that women would become world leaders. 
On a more modest scale, Hannah Packer and the front desk of the Exhibition Orchestra would go on to lead the Christchurch Music Union Orchestra. Moreover, Packer would insist on receiving pay for her services, stepping down from that orchestra when they refused to grant her request and actively negotiating for fair pay when she was reappointed in 1908. Just three years after the exhibition, Packer also lent her signature to the final successful petition for women's suffrage in New Zealand. So too did the mother of the third of the violinists, Nina Schlotl, at the far left there. Nina herself may have still been underage and unable to sign for herself. Analogies have long been drawn between musical performance on the stage and the campaigns for female suffrage. As early as 1859, the American abolitionist and women's rights activist Thomas Wentworth Higginson questioned, how could it be proper for women to sing in public, but indelicate for her to speak in public? And how come a post office box is an unexceptionable place to drop a bit of paper into, but a ballot box terribly dangerous? As suffrage campaigns in Britain became increasingly intense in the early 20th century, the same analogy between musical activity and suffrage could be held against women. For example, in response to the activities of the British composer and suffrage campaigner Ethel Smythe, one hostile critic wrote, to be a strong composer, a woman must be a suffragist. And we do not desire to hold out any extra inducement to the suffragist cause. We should prefer to think that there is nothing in common between votes and notes. Orchestral performance fell somewhere between the singing mentioned by Higginson and the composing of Ethel Smythe. As performance, orchestra, orchestral playing could be framed in feminine terms as a vessel through which the composer's work was given life. However, orchestral performance was not so easily framed as proper for women, as Higginson um, expresses it. Singing was viewed through a Darwinian lens as a natural extension of a woman's physicality, the body as instrument, and her desire to attract a mate. By contrast, orchestral playing required the mastery of the technology of instruments and the ability to coordinate in a workplace environment, as we've seen. Whether consciously political or not, the presence of Mrs. Packer, Joel and Schlottl on the exhibition stage, surrounded by professional men and clad in the white dresses, characteristic not only of women's orchestras, but also of the suffragettes, is a subtle reminder of what there was, in fact, in common between votes and notes. While there's no evidence that any of the three women was active as a suffragette during the time of the exhibition, their participation in the orchestra might thus be seen to be informed by the contemporary move to redefine women's rights in this country. Now, now moving to my second case study, returning to the 1906 Christchurch Exhibition Orchestra with which I opened. Staged some 13 years after New Zealand had become the first nation to grant women the vote, and during a period in which nations still engaged in their own suffrage debates were closely attending to the outcome of that um, decision, the exhibition might have been expected to promote women's rights as a component of New Zealand identity. However, while the exhibition documentation makes frequent reference to nation building, there is no mention whatsoever of women's suffrage. And while some exhibitions in the United States had begun to grant women significant agency, at the Christchurch exhibition, women were represented only on the Home Industries Committee, which was the avenue for private individuals to display their handiwork. Indeed, as Jock Phillips has pointed out, the exhibition promoted New Zealand as a man's country, 
with trooping of the colours at the opening, military displays and an axe tournament. Surely there could be no manlier sport, wrote the press. New Zealand thereby presented a model from which British men, who were perceived to be enduring a crisis of masculinity, might profitably learn. Perhaps some of this rhetoric around the man's country lay behind the initial attempts to exclude Frieda Marsden and presumably the other women from the exhibition's orchestra. By 1906, women were actually prevalent in the string sections of various regional orchestras in New Zealand. Already 10 years earlier, in 1896, seven of the 12 violinists, as well as one of the three cellists in Christchurch's musical union orchestra, were women. And New Zealand had also seen women taking up the conductor's baton. Frieda Marsden herself had some success in this role. But as we've seen with the 1889 Dunedin exhibition, these major national and international events afforded an opportunity to draw players from further afield, to make a statement about the power and progress of the nation. Moreover, while women were also playing in some orchestras in the United States and Australia, many of these regions were increasingly unionising their members in, in the early 20th century, leading to new restrictions being placed on female orchestral players. In this context, perhaps the exhibition officials felt emboldened to attempt to exclude women from the orchestra of this showcase of New Zealand identity. Although Freda Marsden was eventually admitted, the terms of her inclusion are also quite revealing. A key factor seems to have been a letter from the editor of the Littleton Times, who defended Freda Marsden's qualifications for the position, pointing out that her services are readily accepted by all the musical societies. Significantly, the editor added, Miss Marsden is a lady of about 30, of pleasant manners and agreeable appearance, and not at all the kind of person to alarm the most bashful or offend the most exacting of her male fellow workers. In other words, Freda Marsden's participation in the orchestra would neither compromise her respectable status as a pleasant spinster, nor provide undue distraction to the men in the serious business of realising composers' works for the nation. The fact that Freda Marsden and five other women overcame official resistance to gain places in the exhibition orchestra and took to the stage, their white dresses again clearly visible, is a small victory for women in New Zealand music. However, these women weren't the only group whom exhibition officials sought to exclude from the opening ceremony. A letter from George Munro, so the same official who attempted to bar Freda Marsden from the orchestra, a letter this time to the chairman of the Māori committee stated, it is not proposed that the Māoris should take any active part in the opening ceremony. The exhibition opened with no Māori on the stage of New Zealand's potent expression of national identity. However, paradoxically, exploring the ways in which Māori and specifically Māori women were portrayed through the 1906 exhibition can enhance our understanding of the experience of the Pākehā women in the orchestra, as I hope to show in the remainder of this talk. While Māori were excluded from the concert hall stage, the most extensive acts of Māori self-representation took place on Arai Te Uru Pā, outside the main exhibition building. Journalistic accounts emphasised the gendered associations of the different forms of performance that took place there. Thus, haka was associated in the Pākehā minds with um, Māori warfare and masculinity, and we get a sense of that in this account um, published in the Christchurch Weekly Press that points out how Arai Te Uru Moro Pā showed the modern pale face, how his dusky warrior brother lived in the brave days of old. 
However, while all male haka and all female poi dancers were certainly enacted before visiting crowds at the exhibition, in some performances women and men together wielded weapons, and most significantly, at least one haka at the exhibition featured manu ngangahu, or a woman warrior. Unlike journalistic accounts, which leave the sense that the warlike haka were exclusively male, this photographic evidence reveals the continuation of the practice some iwi had of involving women in haka. Indeed, Johannes Andersen's Māori music of 1934 offers several Pākehā accounts from the 19th century of women taking key roles in haka, including as leaders. Māori women at the exhibition, with us offering their own challenge to Pākehā performances of colonial femininity as something primarily domestically oriented. In fact, the Pākehā women of the orchestra also performed a haka, albeit in a highly mediated form. The centrepiece of the orchestra's performance at the opening ceremony was an exhibition ode, composed especially for the occasion by Alfred Hill, the third movement of which is designated a haka. Alfred Hill, depicted in the centre of this image, also conducted the orchestra and had supported the inclusion of women in its ranks. Although the focus of my research is on the experiences of the women whose contribution to orchestral history has so long remained invisible, and there is also already excellent scholarship being carried out now on the life and music of Alfred Hill, the haka of the exhibition ode bears closer scrutiny, for it's a rich site of intersecting questions of gender, culture and orchestral performance, and I suggest was a key component of the women's experience. The text of the exhibition ode by Danish-born ethnologist and poet Johannes Andersen represents generic tendencies of such odes internationally. Works in this genre were invariably designed to represent the pride and progress of the nation, and the seven movements of Andersen's text outline what was by this time a standard Australasian exhibition narrative of progress towards civilization in a young nation. The emphasis is on the masculine position of the man's country, as Jock Phillips put it, and the only times a woman's voice prevails, so in the second movement with soprano soloist, it is to characterise the land itself as virgin territory awaiting conquest, an image that is strengthened in the text of the fifth movement in the passage I highlighted in green there. Interestingly though, the cover image is dominated by women depicted in acts of musical performance the classical figure with lyre and the modern woman seated at the piano. Music itself is here gendered female, an act of leisure and beauty achievable only by a modern society, as the text of the fourth movement of the ode makes clear. Welcome the leisure for viol and tabor, welcome the leisure that labor has won. Specifically, musical performance is also portrayed as decorative, visually attractive and effeminate. Where Anderson's text departs from Australian models is in its direct references to the indigenous people. Most Australian texts in this genre leave the impression that Europeans arrived to create a nation on wholly unoccupied land. The third movement of Anderson's text acknowledges, not unfought, the Isles were won. But lest the audience begin to experience some discomfort in confronting memories of the wars of the previous century, Anderson notes that the pioneers arrived to discover that the land was already torn by battle-loving band, telling Māori, ye were dying when we came. Anderson's text clearly depicts a Pākehā narrative voice, the idiosyncratic cries of ha, 
ha, the intrude as a refrain towards the end of each verse, might be understood as reported speech, recalling the battle cries of either Māori or Pākehā. It is Hill's setting of this text that makes it over as a Pākehā representation of a Māori voice throughout. Hill explicitly labels the movement in the time of a haka, which is, you can see just in the top there, it's very small, sorry, in green. At least one critic picked up on the musical references to the haka in the movement, suggesting it was, quote, intensely characteristic of a haka, bold, rugged, barbaric, and entirely original in character and quality. And we'll have a listen to that now. second verse is the same, same music. The fact that Alfred Hill himself saw the movement as representative of a masculine Māori idiom is evidenced by the fact that he subsequently reused the same music as a war song in an opera Teora, or The Enchanted Flute, in which the music is given a text about vengeance and sung by a Māori warrior. In the exhibition ode, Hill assigns the haka text to a baritone, and indeed Hill's other depictions of haka clearly reveal that he saw the genre as an exclusively masculine one. He assigned haka idioms to male characters as an expression of strength and aggression, whereas Māori female characters were usually given music associated with qualities of grace or sentiment. This gender binarism was wholly characteristic of European music at the time, um, and was typically exaggerated in compositions when applied to an exotic locale, the men becoming brutal savages, the women seductive. The essentializing of gender in Māori land music by Pākehā composers contributed ultimately to a broader colonisation of Māori practice. If, however, we consider Hill's work as an event enacted by living bodies rather than a static text, and if we recall whose bodies those were on stage at the exhibition, the narrative becomes a little more complex. The white-bloused Manu Ngangahu of the haka on the pa is replaced by the white-clad women of the orchestra, similarly positioned in the front but to the outside edges of the second violins in this image, in the bottom image there. Where women on the model pa wielded weapons, the Pākehā women wielded bows, which in the previous century had often been likened to swords and the gendered rhetoric that long deterred women from taking up performance on bowed string instruments, as we've seen. 
this visual prominence might be further unpacked when we look at the music Hill wrote for the orchestral violins, which is the section where these women were. The haka movement suggests Hill's conception of the warlike haka not only sonically, but visually as well. Pākehā comments about haka emphasise certain recurring gestures. For example, um, in describing the hakas and war songs of the model par at the exhibition, James Cohen noted the thrusting this way and that of wooden spears and tayahas, the strange quivering of outstretched hands. If we look at the gestures required to perform the violin part of the orchestral haka, we see similar thrusting and quivering. The, and I'm sorry I um, don't have any video of this, so I'm just going to have to, you have to pretend this is a bow and I'll just sort of demonstrate some of these things in the air. So the Sandy accents of the opening bars, which we can see uh, sort of here, um, highlighted up here, um, so it require a very sort of strong pressure into the string um, and quite an aggressive sort of movement that way, but more visually striking are the bowing marks, uh, which we can see unusually here below um, the staves, these sort of square U shapes, which are um, designating down bows, so this direction of the bow rather than this direction. Um, and the fact that Hill, who, um, this is his autograph manuscript, so he indicated this bowing, um, the fact that he's requiring retakes for each of those bows means that the violinist has to do these rapid sort of movements in the air and create these sort of uh, repeated thrusting gestures. Um, and in the diary he kept as a violinist and a composition student in Leipzig, Hill noted how he and some of his fellow violinists thought of the bow as a heavy sword. Um, so Hill himself was sort of very conscious of this militaristic language that had long been associated with violin performance. But in the context of his orchestral haka, perhaps Hill was thinking of the warlike gestures not of swords, but of the haka itself. The analogy becomes even more striking when we consider the coordinated nature of bowing gestures performed by violinists arranged in a section and lines across the front of the stage. Similar thrusting gestures occur in the bars of accented pizzicato or plucked notes um, that follow um, with the violinists sort of, uh, because they're accented, using a quite sort of forceful gesture and pulling um, the string away from the instrument repeatedly. Um, by contrast, the quivering, or wiri, um, that Cohen observed in Haka might also be suggested by the violinist's gestures. The first um, passage ends with measured tremolo, highlighted here um, in the purple um, down below there. And tremolo literally means trembling, uh, and renders longer notes as um, shorter, more rapid notes, but so they're not only heard, but also seen as a sort of a trembling hand like this. And I'll play that now and sort of um, try to gesture that as it goes by. But you'll just have to imagine there's a whole orchestra, of, including three women, um, or actually more than three women, four women in that second violin section doing this. Um, so there's the accents going by. And here we get these retakes. So in this moment, multiple narratives collide. 
For the Pākehā women of the orchestra, whom exhibition officials had sought to exclude, their presence on the stage, performing Hill's official exhibition ode, was a form of victory. Māori women, on the other hand, were forcibly excluded from the stage, represented through Pākehā words and music. And yet if we step outside traditional Western analytical frameworks, which tend to privilege the abstract and disembodied sonic object or score, and if we instead consider the music as performed visibly by female bodies as well as male ones, we might appreciate this event as a more complex statement of identity. While the performance of the haka by the Pākehā orchestral musicians represents a silencing of Māori culture and a triumph of the abstractions of Western art music, by encouraging audiences to view the performing bodies of the orchestral musicians, the performance simultaneously challenged notions both of colonial femininity and of the ideology of the Western orchestra, which was supposed to be heard and not seen. The official record of the 1906 exhibition stated of the music at the opening ceremony that it gave definite expression to a deep-felt sense of nationhood achieved, of national independence and self-reliance, of a patriotism and a love of country that at the same time were compatible with a high loyalty to the old land. In conclusion then, the women of the New Zealand exhibition orchestras of both 1889 and 1906 contributed to this narrative of nationhood achieved and independence that was nevertheless compatible with the old land. Whether representing the suffrage ambitions of middle-class Pākehā women or embodying the powerful gestures of haka, by taking to the stage, the women both contributed to the establishment of the orchestral traditions of the old land in New Zealand and subtly challenged the very terms on which these traditions were so often constructed, encouraging us not only to listen to the composer's work but to see the music and its players. In rendering visible the women who have so long remained hidden from musicological histories, we can thus gain a richer understanding not only of individuals' experiences, but of our own cultural history and of the orchestra itself. Thank you. When I went to the Royal Academy of Music in 1970, um, the girls, including myself, were really angry at the fact we had to wear white dresses with a sash. Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> and this was the year when that got thrown away. Um, there were also separate men and women's common rooms, incidentally, and that was uh, people were busy getting rid of those as well. Yeah, I just thought I'd share. Thank you, that's fantastic. And I wanted to say, if anybody has those kinds of stories, I, uh, you know, this is the stage of the research where I'm, you know, just wanting to collect and absorb as many, as much of this information as possible. So, if anybody knows any of these women, or you know, is descended from them, um, or is descended from women who they know played in orchestras, I would um, please, please get in touch. But that's fantastic. The sash um, that was a feature of the exhibition choirs um, uniforms that was made a big deal of, you know, they had different coloured sashes um, for the sopranos and the altos and it's part of that whole sort of visual, you know, this idea that the women are quite decorative on the stage as well. So I'm sort of amazed and horrified to hear that this was still going on in, um, uh, in the 1970s, you said. Yeah, goodness. That was Inga. Lovely to see you again. Um, I'm just thinking about the women in the choirs. There seem to be plenty of those. Uh, were they um, 
was everybody in the choir volunteers or the women only volunteers or what was the story about them? Um, <clears throat> yeah, women in choirs is a completely separate area. I mean, they were fully acceptable. It was an expression of sort of community and um, so forth. Um, I believe, I'm pretty sure the choir members were not paid um, male or female, actually. I think that was very much a, um, you know, a sort of community, um, it, very much in the sort of spirit of community and um, people were just excited to be able to, you know, step onto the stage and take part in this event. The choir um, wasn't required to perform multiple times per week all through the exhibition as well, you know, that's sort of, they, um, while they, their work then their contribution overlaps with the orchestra, it was also kind of defined in quite a different way, I think, but yeah, interesting, interesting question. Thank you. Uh, thanks so much, Inga, for the, the talk today. Um, really, really interesting research to share with us. My question is a little bit of a follow-up to that last one. Um, in the sense that women did feature in these other kinds of musical or singing ensembles, mm. and I, I think also of the, um, the kind of big guitar orchestras that were starting to um, appear in New Zealand around that time. There were, there were all women uh, banjo, mandolin, guitar bands. Mm. Um, What's your sense of what's at stake in the orchestra itself as a sort of cultural institution in New Zealand? I mean, it seems like it's sort of high in the, in the musical hierarchy, which sort of really, I, I think, would um, underline the, the points you're making, mm. that this kind of really mattered, mm. that it was an orchestra that this was happening in. So what, what is there in the, in the discourse at that time that um, reflects on that? Um, yes, thank you. That's a really sort of loaded question. I mean, it's it's <laughs> um, how long have we got? It's <laughs> yeah. So it's this whole idea that orchestral music in this period was um, this is the period in which the canon was being formed. This is the period in which I mean, as you know, um, you know, this concept of high art was being defined and sort of set up in opposition to popular music or entertainment music. And the orchestra was able to straddle, you know, both domains. It wasn't just playing sort of serious high art music, but um, the fact that this orchestra was to sort of bring that music to the stage in a, you know in a really sort of professional context and play that music um, of the old land and everything to the highest possible standards, both of these orchestras, um, kind of, I think, you know, really sort of emphasised that idea that the players needed to be, take second place to the repertoire on one level. Does that make sense? Whereas, um, you know, some of the other avenues in which women participated, including the women's orchestras that were more for entertainment, they weren't beholden to quite the same um, expectations, I suppose, of the serious canonic concert repertoire that was during this precise period just starting to really kind of get its, you know, grip on the consciousness, I guess. Um, actually, my, my question is about, um, in terms of the women not being paid in the orchestras and thinking about the women in the entertainment and the mm. travelling troops and the various different entertainment that was going on in New Zealand who were being paid, mm. um, who were working class. Um, how does that, you know, they, that must have impacted on them. They must have been aware of women being paid on, on the stage, but obviously in a yeah. lower form, I guess. You I think that's, that's the key, is that there were already these two paradigms through the women-only orchestras um, for the respectable women who didn't need money, 
um, who could play music, great music, just for sort of, you know, purposes of enriching themselves and society more broadly, and the women who played for money. With, I mean, they might, might have similarly done it for enrichment and enjoyment and so forth. You know, we don't want to reinforce those sort of problematic binaries, but um, they needed the money as well. And I think these women didn't need the money. Um, they were just sort of on the cusp of this um, movement of women going into paid work and nevertheless being able to retain respectable status. Uh, so I think, and, and for them it was a sort of golden opportunity to play in the nation's leading orchestra, the best orchestra that had been assembled to date. So I don't know, I mean, I would love to find out what they actually thought about that um, question of pay and the fact that one of them went on um, almost two decades later to actually actively agitate to be paid for her work as an orchestral player I think is interesting, suggests she might have perhaps already had some resentment but I don't know, I just don't know. There were certainly models available for women to you know, perform without pay um, but it's just it's particularly striking when you get one of these instances of a mixed orchestra where the men are being paid pretty well and the women are not being paid at all. It sort of it just really throws into relief, I think, the um, the factors that they were dealing with in this period. Thank you.